0: It has been estimated that somewhere around 15 million Americans deal with very serious depression. 15 million adults deal with it. And I think we've all felt times of distress and we've all felt times of discouragement. There will be those seasons of discouragement. There will be those times of despair. And it's okay to go through those things if we remember that joy comes in the morning.
1: The Bible says that the gospel of Christ is the power of God unto salvation. Welcome to Pulpit Power, featuring Pastor Tony Skeving, Senior Pastor of Fargo Baptist Church in Fargo, North Dakota. Today's message was previously preached before a church audience. And now, here's Pastor Skeving.
0: Let's turn to 1 Kings chapter 19, if you would. And we're going to be talking about when you are distressed or discouraged or depressed. I think that most people can relate to this subject because at some time or another, I think we're going to all fall into that condition. And we find here in First Kings chapter 19 a prophet, no less, that has fallen into that kind of a condition. And his name is Elijah. And we pick it up here in verse number 2 of First Kings chapter 19. Then Jezebel sent a messenger unto Elijah saying, So let the gods do to me and more also. If I make not thy life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And when he, Elijah, saw that, he arose and went for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongeth to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went day's journey into the wilderness and came down, or came and sat down under a juniper tree. And he requested for himself that he might die and said, It is enough now, O Lord. Notice these next four words. Take away my life. Take away my life. He was so discouraged and distressed and in such despair and in such depression at this point. He despaired of his life even. And he said, God, take away my life. Let's talk about this business of being discouraged or depressed and how we can deal with it biblically. But let's pray first, shall we? Father, we do thank you now for the scriptures and the light they give. And we ask you now to give to us illumination as we look at uh, many examples in thy word of those who got in that state of mind, got in that condition. And Father, how you worked with them, how they responded, and how we ought to respond. We pray for your help. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Back years ago, and I don't know if there's still such a thing in the FM area here, but they had what was called a bummed hotline. I don't know how many of you remember the bummed hotline, and it was named such because of the fact that you could call into it if you were feeling discouraged, or what you would say, uh, bummed out. Discouragement is a reality. Despair is a reality, and and there are outreaches like that 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 are helpful. They reach out to people at such times, and there are uh, suicide counselors and things along those lines, because it has been estimated that somewhere around 15 million Americans deal with very serious depression. 15 million adults deal with it. And I think we've all felt times of distress, and we've all felt times of discouragement, Stories told a fictitious one of of an auction that Satan was holding many years ago, and he had all his his best tools to knock Christians out of the race uh, on online and on for sale there up, across the uh, the counter, and and there was pride and, and there was selfishness and and there was stubbornness and lust and lots of other tools that he had, but but behind the counter under the glass was this thing called discouragement. And somebody asked why that's not for sale. He said, oh no, I could never sell discouragement. He said, it's my my most powerful tool when it comes to Christians. And that just might be true. I think uh, we've all sighed at times and we've all felt times when we were falling behind and we just couldn't catch back up. And we've all had times when uh, fatigue set in and car problems set in and money problems set in and house problems set in and, and marriage problems set in and, and, and problems with the kids and with our friends and, and with our health and, and disappointments and frustrations. And, and we all have those times when we get down. And we can give reasons for most of the time, but perhaps there's times when there's no reason whatsoever. You just are walking under this cloud and, and you don't know why it's there and how to get rid of it. You know, I was talking with uh, a preacher and, and he's preached many times here and he's a man up close to his 80s now and, and always on the top side. You just never know it, but he has such clouds at times. And he said, preacher, I can't explain it, but it's just there and it just hangs over me. Well, here's Elijah. He's the great miracle worker. and He's the great man of, of faith. He's a powerful man. He's the man who got taken up to heaven in a, in a chariot. He's the man who in the New Testament makes a cameo appearance on the top of the Mount of the Transfiguration with Jesus Christ, no less. And he's probably the man who's going to be one of at least two witnesses that are going to come back during the tribulation period. We're talking about Elijah here, and yet we find this in verse 4. It says, but he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree and he requested for himself that he might die and said, it is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life. What led up to this? Well, Elijah had spent three and a half years out in the desert. It was a time of drought and famine there in Israel and it was pronounced by God and by faith Elijah's out there and and the water and the, the food is running out in most parts of the country. But he's being fed by a greedy raven, no less. And every day the raven is bringing him food and sustenance. And, and finally, the day comes when it's showtime. God calls him to the top of Mount Carmel. I've been there. And they have a statue there to this day of Elijah up on the top of, of Mount Carmel. And if you ever see a map of Israel and you see that little part that jets out uh, along the Mediterranean, that's Mount Carmel. And there he gathered together Israel, and he gathered together the the prophets of Ahab and Jezebel, 450 in in all. And they had this showdown where they each prepared their offering, a bullock on an altar. And for hours, there's the Baal worshippers, and there's these pagan priests, and they're trying to call down fire upon this offering, and nothing's happening. And finally, he says, step aside, boys. And he prepares his altar, and he puts 12 stones around it, and he digs this trench, and he calls for the folks, and he says, take four barrels of water and pour it on the offering. And they do it, and he said, do it again. They do it, and he says, do it again. They do it again, and the thing is just dripping wet and drenching. And then he prays this this really simple prayer. Notice it in chapter number 8, beginning in verse 36. It says, And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Israel, let it be known this day that Thou art God in Israel, and that I am Thy servant, and that I have done all these things at Thy word. Hear me, O Lord. Hear me that this people may know that Thou art the Lord God, and that Thou hast turned their heart back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, that is Jehovah, He is the God. The Lord Jehovah, He is the God. And Elijah said unto them, Take the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they took them and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slew them there. And Elijah said unto Ahab, Get thee up, and eat and drink, for there is a sound of abundance of rain. Now, he's famous. (laughs) It's revival time. He's going to be a household word. He's going to be invited everywhere to preach. Love offerings are going to pour in. Not a synagogue in Israel that's not going to want Elijah to come to town and preach. He's famous. He's on the top side. There should be joy. But no. No, in fact, within hours in chapter 19 again and in verse number four, but he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree and he requested for himself that he might die and said, it is enough now, O Lord, take away my life for I am not better than my fathers. How sad. But here he is threatened by this 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 old bag by the name of Jezebel, let's just call her what she is, and he should have laughed at her. Seriously? You're going to get me? I'm going to call down fire on your head next. By the way, I count at least three times in the life of Elijah where he did this. He could have done that. But here he is. He's on the run. He's, he's, uh, he's lamenting. And, and here's this, this bulletproof prophet who you would swear ate nails for breakfast, tough as nails, one of the greatest of the greats, and yet here he is and he's still prone to discouragement. He's down in the dumps, but he's not alone. As we're talking about discouragement, let's talk about a few things relative to it. And the first is what I call the unpleasant reality of it. The unpleasant reality of it, it's real. In fact, look in the book of Job, if you would. Just before the Psalms, you find the book of Job. Turn to the third chapter here, and we find an outstanding man of God in the Old Testament who had lived for the Lord and is the greatest of the men in the East, and God's blessing in hand is upon him, but he loses everything overnight. I mean, he loses his livestock. He loses his employees. He loses, worst of all, his children, and then the loyalty of his his wife, and on top of that, his health. And so he, he's in a city ash heap now, sitting in the ashes, trying to find some relief for his, his oozing sores. And he's pouring out his heart to God at this point in chapter 3. And we pick it up in verse 1. After this opened Job his mouth and cursed his day. And Job spake and said... Let the day perish wherein I was born and the night in which it was said there was a man-child conceived. Let that day be darkness. Let not God regard it from above. Neither let the light shine upon it. Let darkness and the shadow of death stain it. Let a cloud dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. As for that night, let darkness seize upon it. Let it not be joined unto the days of the year. Let it not come unto the number of the months. Lo, Let that night be solitary. Let no joyful voice come therein. Let them curse it, that curse the day who are ready to raise up their morning. Let the stars of the twilight thereof be dark. Let it look for light, but have none. Neither let it see the dawning of the day. Now he's talking about the day he was born. And boy, he says a mouthful here. Why? Verse 10, because it shut not up the doors of my mother's womb, nor hid sorrow from mine eyes. Why died I not from the womb? Why did I not give up the ghost when I came out of the belly? Does this man sound distressed? And have you ever said that? Why did I have to be born? You ever heard somebody say that? Why did I have to be born? That's what he's saying here. Imagine his despair. Imagine Job's despondency and his discouragement. But he's not alone. In fact, flip over to the New Testament to Acts chapter twenty. And we find the great Apostle Paul here, wrapping up his third missionary journey in Acts chapter 20. After years of being faithful to the Lord and and serving tirelessly, being stoned and betrayed and, and burdened with the care of the churches, day after day he lives under this strain. There's people all over the place. He's busy, 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 busy all the time. And we find here in chapter 20 he'd been preaching all night. This is when Eutychus the boy falls out the window and we pick it up in verse 13 the next morning. It says, And we went before to ship and sailed to Asos there intending to take in Paul for so had he appointed minding himself to go afoot. And when he met with us at Asos we took him in and came to Mileti. Now, Why did Paul walk? Maybe you didn't catch it there, but Luke and company gets on the ship after the all-night preaching service, but Paul doesn't. Paul says, I'll just meet up with you there, Mileti, and he gets on foot, and he walks, you know, it's only 20 miles, if you can imagine that. How many of you would say, uh, you drive to Castleton, I'll walk and, and meet you guys there. No, we wouldn't do that, would we? What's with this? You know, sometimes we need to read between the lines here. He had something on, on his heart. He'd been preaching all night. Certainly he was tired. But he said, I want to walk. I want to walk. You take the ship. Now, imagine his, his burdens were heavy at this time. And, and, and here's people around him all the time. And did even the great apostle Paul get down? I believe he did. In fact, if you turn to chapter 23 of Acts you find things really wrapping up here as he's gotten now back to Jerusalem, and and the wheels have fallen off, and he's on one trial after another, and and uh, they're smacking him on the mouth here in this very chapter for testifying, and and so he gets down to verse number ten. It says in Acts twenty-three ten, and when there arose a great dissension, the chief captain, fearing lest Paul should have been pulled in pieces of them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him by force from among them, and to bring him into the castle. And the night following, the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as thou hast testified of me in Jerusalem, so must thou bear witness also at Rome. Be of good cheer, Paul. Why would the Lord say that? Maybe Paul needed cheering up. Maybe Paul needed cheering up. You know, it's rare for the Lord after his ascension to heaven to make any appearance like this, and I can count him on one hand with fingers left over, where he comes back and he says something personally to somebody like Paul. I think Paul was down here. And really, anyone can be prone to discouragement. It's unlikely that you're the exception or I'm the exception. This can happen to all of us. In fact, I, I preached on encouragement in the ministry This has been a a number of years ago, and I was out in Washington State. And I had a missionary come up to me afterwards with tears in his eyes. If you knew him, we'd support him. But always upbeat, always on the top side, always positive. But he's in tears, and he's trembling. He said, thank you, preacher. He goes, I needed that. I needed that. Many years ago, there was a Midwestern lawyer. He was so discouraged, so despondent, so depressed. That they removed all razors and knives from him, thinking, we've got to keep him from hurting himself here. He wrote in his diary, I believe I am the most miserable man alive. And he said, worst of all is the thought that I shall never get better. Well, he did get better. And he went on to become our 16th president, Abraham Lincoln. Look at Numbers chapter 21, if you would. Life can be tough, life can be brutal. We find here Numbers chapter 21, the Jews out in the wilderness wandering. They'd been in Egyptian bondage. That was rough. But now they're out in the wilderness and they're on their way to the promised land and you'd think things would be looking up. But we find a statement made here in Numbers chapter 21 and verse number 4. It says, And they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to compass the land of Edom and the soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way. The soul of the people was much discouraged. The way was rocky. There were thorns. There was brush. There were hills. And these were tough folks. They'd been in slavery. They were chiseled. They were muscular. They were used to hard work. But the way was hard. They had a rough assignment ahead to boot. You ever had a rough assignment ahead of you and it's, it's already bad as you're going? I'll never forget following the 97 flood in the Red River Valley and we, we own a house right along the, the river. We've been there for 20-some years and we hadn't been in there but for a couple years. And, and so when the flood went down and, and our house survived, uh, we knew we had some issues down in our basement we had to fix. The, the concrete was all heaved from a hundred years of that stuff going on, and the Red River gumbo clay just expanded. So it was already a mess. So we thought we got to bust this out, and uh, while we're doing it, we're just going to bust out a few places for windows, and we're going to haul out the concrete, and we're going to haul out the mud, and we're going to bring in pea rock and drain tile and get the ceiling high. And it, so here we are, and we're, we're trying to dig out the clay, and as we're digging, it turns to mud. And as we're digging out mud, it turns to muck. And then it turns to slop. And then we're realizing this stuff sticks to the shovel. And it's probably faster to just pick up the muck with our hands and put it in the bucket. I'm telling you, it was such a mess. It turned out nice. But I can understand the soul of the people being much discouraged because of the way. Sometimes the way gets hard. I'll never forget when we dug the footings of this building. And we probably had three to four feet of sand everywhere, and even more where the floor sloped. And we dug down in in most places three to four feet. We had this, the the footings all ready to pour, and if you want a a downpour, just pour footings, okay? Just dig for footings. It rained cats and dogs in here and it leveled out the whole place and it left just this soupy mess and we had to pump out the water for days before we could even get back to square one. And I'm telling you, you can get so discouraged at those times. Look at Nehemiah chapter 4 if you would. We're not the first ones to have to clear away a mess before we can even... Build. I'm thinking of Nehemiah here. And I'm going back to about 586 B.C. when Jerusalem was ransacked and destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar and the Jews were taken captivity back to Babylon where they remained for 70 years until Cyrus gave the decree to let them go back and rebuild the city. And they got back there and they got started, but things stalled out. Stalled out. And so enter the, the prophet Nehemiah into the picture here. And in chapter 4, they're going to be rebuilding the wall here. But notice in verse number 1, But it came to pass that when Sanballat heard that we built the wall, he was wroth, and took great indignation and mocked the Jews. And he spake before his brethren and the army of Samaria and said, What do these feeble Jews? Will they fortify themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they make an end in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of the rubbish which are burned? Now, Tobiah the Ammonite was by him, and he said, even that which they build, if a fox go up, he shall break down their stone wall. Can you just hear him yucking it up here? Good one, Tobiah. (laughs) And they're mocking the Jews. You get down to verse number 8. And they conspired all of them together to come and to fight against Jerusalem and to hinder it. Nehemiah says, nevertheless, we made our prayer unto our God and set a watch against them day and night because of them. And Judah said, the strength of the bearers of burdens is decayed. And there is much rubbish so that we are not able to build the wall. Here's these folks, and they're tired already. Plus, they got all this junk to clear away before they can even get started. And it's like bad news on top of bad news. Look at verse 11. And our adversaries said, They shall not know, neither see, neither, or, till we come in the midst among them and slay them and cause the work to cease. Notice verse 12. And it came to pass that when the Jews which dwelt by them came, they said unto us ten times, From all places when she shall return unto us, they will be upon you. Here's the Jews living the closest to the adversaries, and they're getting this negative input. And they're passing it along. And the discouragement is setting in. Discouragement can be lethal, folks. Back around 1900, the Boer Wars were raging over in southern Africa in what today is is Swaziland. We've heard of that country. And the English were there fighting, and an English soldier was in the trenches going from person, from soldier to soldier, saying, we'll never come out of this thing alive. Things look bad. There's no way we're going to win this. They caught up with him later, and they court-martialed him for that, and they put him in prison for an entire year just for discouraging others. Discouragement is lethal. It's severe, which leads to another example. If you would turn to Psalm 73, and here we see the psalmist, Asaph, and he is lamenting. He is discouraged. He's telling what's on his heart. And in Psalm 73, he says this in verse number 2, But as for me, my feet were almost gone, my steps had well nigh slipped, for I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. There's another reason Christians get discouraged. They're doing right. They're trying to live right. They're trying to live for the Lord, and yet they're suffering. And to add insult to injury, they look at the unsaved, and they say, boy, it's easy street for them. Nothing goes wrong for them. They see the ungodly prospering and and wonder, why does God allow this? Why does God allow that? Well, that all ties in with one more. Look in Luke chapter 5. And then we'll help find some answers to these questions. By way of background, in Luke chapter 5, we find the disciples out fishing. I'll put quotes around that. They didn't catch anything. Some fishing. And so here they are with their empty nets after a night of defeat. And we used to call this skunked back when we'd fish. How'd you do? I got skunked. And, And that meant you got nothing, right? So they came back. Here's their livelihood. Now they have no house payment and no groceries. It's a tough way to make their living already. And so after a night of of getting nothing, they're discouraged, and we pick it up in verse number 1. It came to pass that as the people pressed upon him to hear the word of God, he stood by the lake of Gennesaret and saw two ships standing by the lake, but the fishermen were gone out of them and were washing their nets and entered into one of the ships, which was Simon's, and prayed him that he would thrust out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people out of the ship. Now, when he had left speaking, he said unto Simon, Launch out into the deep, and let down your nets for a draft. And Simon answering said unto him, Master, we have toiled all the night and have taken nothing. And nevertheless, at thy word, I will let down the net. And when they had this done, they enclosed a great multitude of fishes, and their net brake, and they beckoned unto their partners, which were in the other ship, that they should come and help them. And they came and filled both the ships so that they began to sink. And when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he was astonished, and all that were with him, at the draft of the fishes which they had taken. Now, we flip the coin over. We see a disastrous night of fishing here. But why does God allow such discouraging things? Well, there's the unpleasant reality, but secondly, there's the ultimate results. Why does God allow things in the lives like men like Elijah and and the psalmist and Job and and Paul and Nehemiah and, and Peter? Well, I find these men and others all have one thing in common. They round a corner. They see Romans 8, 28 work. They see all things work together for good to them that love God. And they find here that discouragement and despair and despondency eventually produces something positive. We have a song on our radio station, God Will Make This Trial a Blessing. You ever heard that song? God Will Make This Trial a Blessing. And he does. There's always blessings on the other side. And when that happens, folks, our faith grows. Peter's faith grew. We find Peter later on, he's, he's out there walking on the water and he's, he's preaching on the day of Pentecost. Those times of discouragement, I think, give God an opportunity to show his power and to show his wisdom and our faith is enhanced and we realize that God did it. God did it. God can do it. The Bible says of Job, for example, after going through all that, God gave him twice as much as he had before. And the Bible says the latter end of Job was better than the first, better than the beginning. Those Jews in the wilderness, by the way, it was hard. And the soul of the people was much discouraged, but they did eventually cross the Jordan, and they did go from victory unto victory, and they did see what God could do. Look in Galatians, if you would, chapter 6. There are better things on the other side when we come through. There's a great verse over here in Galatians chapter 6. It's, a, it's an admonition not to quit. It's an admonition not to dip the banner. It's a great thing to memorize. In Galatians 6 and in verse number 9, the Bible says, And let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. That's the admonition. In due season we'll reap if we faint not. There will be those seasons of discouragement. There will be those times of despair, and it's okay to go through those things if we remember that joy comes in the morning. That's what the psalmist said in Psalm 30 in verse 1. Weeping may endure for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Joy comes in the morning. So times of temporal grief are doable. They're doable. Besides, we have a Savior who came through times of grief. I find in Isaiah 53, the Bible says he was a man of sorrows, right? He was acquainted with grief. He understood what it is to go through it, and he's no stranger to that grief. And yet, and yet, he was always busy encouraging others. I find, I think at least nine times in the Bible where he would say, fear not, fear not, or be of good cheer. We read it a moment ago there, or be not afraid, or get in the yoke with me. We find our our Savior encouraging others, which reminds me, that's another key, to getting victory over those times of discouragement, and that is to get our eyes off ourselves, get our eyes on other people, get our minds on other people. Jesus Christ never thought of himself. He was always focused on others. He lived unselfishly, and his his cares and his concerns were always directed at others, always others. And so also, let, let me add, Stay focused on the mission because Christ always did that. You know, the, the disciples got sidetracked so many times. But we find our Savior, for example, in, in John 4. He's weary. The Bible says he's in Samaria and he rests on the side of the well. And he lifts up his eyes into the fields that are white in the harvest. And he never lost sight of that. And the disciples are saying, Eat, Master. And he's saying, I have, I have meat to eat that you know not of. He never lost focus of the mission. Now, what lessons can we learn from the others here? Others like Peter, and others like David, and others like Nehemiah. Well, we find there that in Judah, the strength of the bearers of burden had decayed. There was so much rubbish. And those who were living closest to the adversaries are coming back with these evil reports. And Nehemiah said, nonetheless, we're going to rise up and build. We're going to rise up and build. It was exciting at first. Every building project is, by the way, until the trenches fill in with water and other things go south. They rose up and they built, and we find here that this this mess called Jerusalem... By the way, Jerusalem has been uh, sacked and rebuilt probably dozens of times. You can only imagine the rubble there. And so they're building along, and the enthusiasm is wearing off. They're getting to the tough stuff. Maybe you can relate to that. You get to the tough stuff and you're losing your strength and you're losing your vision and you have discouragement winking at you. And you're losing heart and you're losing motivation and you're losing security. What do you do? Maybe you have time working against you. The Bible says hope deferred make it the heart sick. You're waiting and you're waiting and you're waiting. So what did Nehemiah and the others do at those times? We're running short of time, so we're not going to turn the passages again. But we've talked about the unpleasant reality. We've talked about the ultimate results. And finally, let's talk about some, and quickly, some useful rules. You might want to jot these down. What do you do when you get discouraged? Well, first of all, realize that quitting is not an option. Nehemiah and these others had cut "quick" out or quit out of their dictionary and "compromise" out of their dictionary. And it was not an option. Quitting is not an option. An option. Secondly, we find that Nehemiah and others unified the people. They had a common goal, and they remembered what that goal was. Nehemiah also reminded the people of their families. What about your families? Will that keep you going? And he reminded them about the Lord. Who are we doing this for? We're doing this for the Lord. Now, finally, we want to finish where we started, and that was with Elijah. What happened to Elijah? He's saying, it's enough, Lord. Just kill me. What did God do for him? He didn't kill him. He let him sleep, first of all. (laughs) This is very practical. Sometimes it's just fatigue. Remember the story? Elijah lies down, and he sleeps. Must have been exhausted. That's where some of that talk was coming from. God also fed him. That's pretty practical, isn't it? He said, you need a good meal. Boy, what a meal. He went 40 days on that meal. I'd like to know what was in that stuff, (laughs) And so he's resting and he's eating. And then thirdly, God reminds him that he's not alone. He said there are 7,000 that have not bowed the knee to Baal. Sometimes we think we're the only ones. And that's discouraging. No, God reminds us that we're not alone. Fourthly, God found Elijah, a friend at that time. You know who it was? Elisha. God found him a, a companion, someone to enter into the valley with him. And so do these things at those times of discouragement. And let me also add something very important, often overlooked. Count your blessings. When you're discouraged, count your blessings. Name them one by one. Keep a stroke file. We've talked about that before. Maybe several things every day. And, and not the same thing as yesterday or last week, but some new things. That you're thankful to God for, count your blessings. You know, if you do, you'll always find somebody who has it worse than you. I was witnessing to somebody this last Thursday night. Uh, he has cancer, and boy, they've taken out several internal organs, and and uh, he's lost like forty pounds. and And he said, you know, I, I go to the Roger Maris Cancer Center. I go down to Mayo and. And he goes, I'm, I'm feeling like I've got it rough. And he goes, boy, in the waiting room there, I just see others who have it so much worse than me. And he said, I actually count my blessings. Now, let me just say this. No one is immune to discouragement. And, and, and sometimes it's, it's like a plague. And it, it climbs into our life uninvited. And it, it wraps itself around us. It's an enemy of the soul. And it leaves us feeling hopeless sometimes. And helpless sometimes. Discouragement. A number of years ago over in England, there was a, a band of minstrels, and they were traveling around and, and trying to give little concerts in the evening in various towns and in the outlying hills and, and, and communities, and, and it was hard. Those were hard times. And, and night after night, attendance was poor. Attendance was actually going down. And, and one evening in particular, all the, the four or five guys in the minstrel band were so discouraged And they started talking amongst themselves and they said, you know, last night was the fewest we've ever had. And tonight it's beginning to rain and it's turning to snow. And you know what? We can't do our best. Let's just quit. Let's just refund the money. Let's just tell the folks the show is off tonight. Well, the oldest member of the band walked in, the minstrels, and and they explained to him what they had planned to do. and, And they looked at him and they said, what do you think? He said, fellas, I'm just as discouraged as you are. I I really don't know why we keep doing this, he said, but we can't quit, these folks have paid tickets or they've traveled to come and and, and let's just do the best job we're capable of doing, they all agreed to do that that night and so they they put on their concert and they, they played their hearts out and they did their very best, the best they'd perhaps ever done but there were just a handful of people there and people clapped when they left and everyone walked out and Most of the band, the minstrels, were sitting there kind of going, well, wonder if we did any good. The oldest member come running back from the outside of the tent, and he had this paper in his hand. He said, fellas, I just got this script. He said, I got to read this to you. It says, thank you for your beautiful performance. And it was simply signed, Your King. Your King. Folks, let me just say, and let me just encourage you to finish strong for Your King. For the Lord Jesus Christ's sake, God help us to keep on keeping on.
1: You've been listening to Pastor Tony Skeving of the Fargo Baptist Church in Fargo, North Dakota. If you would like a CD of today's message, you can obtain one by sending a gift of $2 to Fargo Baptist Church, 3303 23rd Avenue South, Fargo, North Dakota, 58103. That address again, Fargo Baptist Church, 3303 23rd Avenue South, Fargo, North Dakota, 58103. We hope you'll join Pastor Skeving next time right here on Pulpit Power. Pulpit Power is a production of Heaven 88.7.